Hello, welcome to the UCC Planning Society podcast. My name is Kieran Deneen, co-host and editor of this student-led podcast. It's been a couple of weeks since we were last with you, but don't worry, we actually have a podcast coming out, the one that you're listening to at the moment, and another one coming out next week. Uh, so we really hope you enjoy those too. On this week's episode, uh, I'm going to be talking to Councillor Marcia Dalton, who is an independent councillor for Cork County Council. She lives in Passage West and is in the Caragaline local electoral area. Very, very busy part of the world, which is where I'm from. Going to be a little bit parochial with the, the selection today. But overall, Marcia is an incredibly interesting person to talk to. She has a background in civil engineering and her entry into local politics is is also something to take note of as it actually centred around a really contentious planning proposal for an incinerator in Ringeskiddy. So that's where I actually began this conversation. I hope you enjoy. So Marcia is here to talk with me this morning. Um, councillor of Cork County Council and in the Caragaline local electoral area. Marcia, good morning. Thank you for joining me. Good morning, Kieran. Thank you for asking me. It's uh, it's always good to have um, a conversation with you, and uh, I think anyone anyone listening to this will will probably I'll try to avoid to remain um, informal, but we do get along very well, and we we have similar thoughts and opinions on a range of uh, a range of different subjects, and um, we've we've probably discussed many things over the bones of the last three or four years, but um, what what I what I want to kind of start with you is how you actually got into politics, because it's an interesting subject, uh, given that it was to do with a really contentious um, planning proposal, planning permission, which after 20 20 years, 21 years, is still ongoing. So tell me a little about how Marcia Dalton got involved in local politics. Uh, Thanks, Kieran. Um, Accidentally and unintentionally, I think is probably the correct description uh, so my background is engineering. Um, I did civil engineering basic degree in college and then went on to do um, a master's in environmental. And I worked in the environmental field for some years and I was running my own consultancy business and living in Monkstown when I had my first child. Um, and then was trying to manage, I was self-employed uh, as opposed to employing others and working out of the house and was trying to manage that with the baby and the husband and um, managing but was all very heavy going to be truthful and then got pregnant again and was finishing a waste license application uh, in St Finbar's Hospital in labour handed it to my husband said bring that to Cork to County Hall and by the time he was back 35 minutes later the baby was out and I said that's it I'm done and so I, I said goodbye and thank you very much to my lovely clients and settled down to being mummy because it was like I had I had a choice at that stage it was either to get bigger and employ and and try to manage my time that way or or stop that's how I thought I couldn't continue the way I was so I decided to stop and I enjoyed about four months of unfettered fresh motherhood before a knock came on the door and a neighbor um had a petition in her hand and she said would you please like to sign this petition against the proposed incinerator in Ring Giddy? so I hadn't heard the slightest bit about the proposed incinerator in Ring of Skiddy and I asked her a few details and I said to her look I'm really sorry I can't sign the petition because I'm actually not anti-incineration 
when I had been working in the environmental field, um, that which I focused on most was the area of waste, both liquid, solid and sludge waste. And, and I knew that incineration had its place. And she said, look, would you please just consider it? And she gave me, she went back up home and she came back down and gave me a copy of the rather voluminous environmental impact statement. So I had a great deal of respect for her and I said, okay, I'll have a look at it. And I did. And having studied the environmental impact statement, um, I formed my own conclusions that the location was just about the most dismal one that they could possibly have found anywhere in the county. And so I joined that fight, so to speak, in inverted commas, um, and was pleased to do so because I had I had relevant expertise and I think I'd like to think it was useful. And when that was over, the oral hearing followed um, and we we performed very well in that oral hearing. The inspector um, recommended that the incineration would be refused. Now the board overturned the, the recommendation, but nonetheless, we felt that we had done well. And some of the local people at that time came to me and said, you know, there's an election coming, would you stand for the local town council? And I tell you now, I come from a very non-political family. It was one of those dinner tables where we didn't discuss politics. It was an irrelevance in our house. I had no interest, no experience. I didn't even know there was a town council. So the town council at that time encompassed the area of Passage West and Monkstown. And um, I thought, Jesus, I don't know. And it seemed on mature reflection to be perhaps a way of keeping my hand in with my my um, engineering degree and perhaps being able to offer myself back out to the workforce when the time came and being able to use the bit of expertise I had in the meantime to make my local place a nicer area for my kids to grow up. So I said, you know what, I'll give it a go. So I did. I gave it a go. And uh, I ran as an independent because of my truthfully lack of interest in politics. And I got elected. So I did the five years as part of the town council. Um, and enjoyed it very much. We punched way above our weight. We were very fortunate in that first town council. There were nine members around the table and we had a real mix of, of practical and professional, all with a focus on local. We had virtually no money, virtually no budget, but because we were all willing to give, those of us who had qualifications were willing to give of our professional time free of charge. And those who are more practically oriented had huge expertise to give in terms of what we could and couldn't achieve on the ground. And we just slotted together really well. So um, and that was, you know, sort of boom years. So there was a lot happening and we needed to be in there a lot. We needed to be very vocal. So that was 2004 and that ran again in 2009. And sure, I didn't even think about running again. It just happened. I was in the middle of projects and sure, I just needed to continue them. So I ran again, it wasn't an issue. And that brought us to 2014. And at this stage, I had five children really wasn't quite ready to go into the workforce. And then Phil Hogan did away with town councils. So I was left swimming. I didn't know what to do. Didn't consider running for county. Didn't consider myself good enough to run for county, quite frankly. Felt that that was more the realm of those who were politically experienced. And then one evening, about three weeks out from the election, I had a call from a rather senior politician asking me would I run for their party. And um, I wouldn't have dreamt of considering it, truthfully, but because he seemed to consider that I had something to offer. I said, you know what, now I'll give it a go. And, and I did. And with a team of three, um, a loyal friend and my husband and uh, myself, <laughs> we set off and I got elected and I did fine. And so that was, um, that was a, when I actually, when I got elected, relevant to this conversation, we went straight into the second phase of the drafting of the development plan. And because I had 
all the planning and engineering experience behind me, I was in a really fortunate position that I wasn't lost. I was able to pick up the conversation. Now, as you know, in the second draft of the Conscious Development Plan, you're relatively limited in what you can change. You're some, you must somewhat adhere to, to the, the advertised text. But a lot of the councillors at that stage, and there was a huge influx of new councillors in that particular year, um, a lot of the councillors found themselves at sea and there was very little to introduce them to the process. But because I had that experience behind me, I enjoyed it. it. I was very fortunate for me personally. I fell into something that I felt I could contribute to almost immediately. Um, and that was great. So here we are. And, you know, it all happened again in 2019. And there you go. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and, and continue to uh, and, can, and continue to get uh, elected by the good people of, of Passage West and, and beyond. Um, I think uh, we, we, we try to probably avoid getting overly um, overly political in these discussions but I, I don't think that you can talk about uh, planning without talking about local government at the same time and briefly if we can maybe touch on um, your councillors or, or your role in we'll say the, the, the planning process um, for those people who maybe aren't totally aware Marcia um, if you want to speak about that kind of on maybe on a day-to-day -day basis um how much influence you would have or what would be kind of coming across your table that would be planning related and then maybe speak a little bit about the the development plan process and what your role is as a as an elected councillor in that yeah okay I'll do my best so on a day-to-day -day basis Kieran really if you're talking about the normal run-of-the-mill planning applications we have very little impact we have very little involvement um the only time really we get involved is when we make a submission unless the constituent rings us to ask us for advice. And, and of course we give it and perhaps sometimes I would normally choose at that stage to make a submission in support of the constituent or in support of the constituent's concerns. And I would do that in a formal way. Um, in the older days, we had to pay the 20 quid to do that. Nowadays, we don't if it's in our municipal district, which is very welcome for me because I would be relatively active in that way. Um, if there's a planning application for our town, you know, or an area where I would have um, an immediate impact on or might be part of, you know, trying to develop a vision for, I would tend to be quite vocal and would put in a submission. Now, I'm cognizant all of the time that my role as a public rep isn't just about my opinion. I have to be very careful to represent the views of my constituents too. So sometimes in the past, I would have contributed to, you know, a fairly fundamental planning application that people would be quite vocal on. And I will say, I'm making this as an elected representative, representing the views of my constituents and would set out perhaps the differing views of my constituents um, and then follow with my own. Um, but I'm conscious that it's not, it, it's not just all about me, you know, and, and, and I try to be very aware of that all of the time. Um, the other part of the sort of day-to-day -day interaction would be where there's a non-compliance with a planning condition and it goes to planning enforcement. That would be something that, um, I sorry, I should add, it's it's completely, when we get a planning application, it's completely the planner who makes the decision. An elected representative will have no role in touching on that. And the best the elected rep can hope to do is to make that submission and then potentially follow up with a phone call to ask where it's at. Um, but even in that, because there's such sensitivity about the role of politics and planning and, and the crossing of all of that 
I tend not to interact at a personal level with the planner. It's just, I find it too sensitive. I'm too scared of it. I stay away from it. There may be maybe other elected members who, you know, perhaps have been in the county system longer than I and are more comfortable with approaching the planner directly. I'm just not, you know, that's just the way I'm programmed. Mm. Um, and then I can always feel that I've always been clean and above board and straightforward. And I don't have to worry about any of that, you know, less pleasant side of the business. <laughs> Um, so the other part that I was saying day to day would be planning enforcement. Um, I would relatively regularly get representation from constituents or indeed see a development which is non-compliant. Sometimes that can be in a way that's quite significant. Um, that would lead to quite significant negative repercussions either for those who are adjacent or, or for some other thing. And so I would have a role as a public rep in making representations on that. Um, and just uh, just on that one, Marcia, because yeah. I think you were mentioning how if something was in your area uh, in terms of submission wise, you didn't have to pay the 20 euro, which is fantastic, right. because I would imagine that there's a lot of people out there um, who would see uh, planning permissions, not necessarily kind of um, fairly ambivalent ones, you know, that would be for houses or something like that. But let's say let's say a new supermarket wants to come into a town and they set out some sort of design phase and you know 20 euro for a lot of people isn't that much money but for other people who might actually have quite a bit of interest in it it would tend to put them off and it's it's difficult for local authorities because I suppose they have to have some bit of fee because you could have a thousand people submitting on something and of course everyone is entitled to um, have their say and if it goes through that process it has to be it has to be looked at um it's uh, and uh, just in terms of the we'll say the the um enforcement wise of maybe some non-compliance um what's what's kind of your uh situation there is that something that you can approach the council with again that's that's kind of free for you to do or do you have to pay that money as well no that's free for me to do and i'll be honest any any representation i've ever made on that or any planning enforcement that i've recommended somebody to do has never had a fee attached and that's because of the process behind the scenes so if you submit a planning enforcement form what you're doing basically is you're asking the council to consider that there may be a non-compliance and behind the scenes what the council does is your enforcement form goes to an admin centre so to speak which deals solely with planning enforcement and that admin centre will send out a warning letter to the developer and the developer has a certain set period, I don't remember, is it four or six weeks, but it's it's relatively significant, within which they respond to the council. And um, and the wording the council uses is very important in that wording letter. And this is all obviously a statutory procedure that must be followed. It's that there may be a non-compliance. So they're not saying that they agree with you or your assessment as a private individual. They're saying that they have had an alert that something's happening that may not be what the council themselves have agreed to. And so if that is the case, please, Mr. Developer, let or Mrs. Developer, let's be equal, let us know why this constituent or this, this resident has this problem. And, and the developer will have that certain set statutory period to respond and either explain or, as may be the case, not respond at all. So if there's a not respond at all situation, the, the, the letter then goes to the planner and the planner will then go out on site and there's no charge for that, Kieran. The planner will go out on site and look at the situation, compare it to the planning conditions, see if there's a non-compliance. And if there is, then an enforcement notice issues. But if there isn't, then 
well and good and that's that and the file is closed and uh, we could we could probably have um conversations about uh we'll say further non-compliance and how difficult it is actually we we might speak to a, a planner at that at some stage who's who's willing to come out maybe from a different local authority and we'll uh, we'll black out his voice or something like that but um in terms of how difficult it is to enforce um uh, enforce in, in certain measures and something that you have spoken about I could about, say lots about that that mightn't do me any good yeah. well <laughs> you know I was I was actually going to bring bring it up in part and that's you know something that you've raised before has been something like uh, the the non-enforcement of collecting levies for derelict sites and der- and vacant buildings and and so on we've had discussions um on this podcast before with with Frank O'Connor and Jude Sherry about um about dereliction in ireland and enforcement seems to be a major issue but it's it, it, apparently it's very very difficult to handle in ireland um what's what's your understanding at a local authority level like when you speak to your your uh, municipal district officers and you're asking the question about levies um you know not not maybe for you to say anything that's going to get you in in trouble or something that may be off the record and, and spoken outside of meetings but what what is your understanding of the process okay well I'll go back to the enforcement bit so there's two enforcement bits so the planning enforcement bit and then there's the enforcement of the derelict sites legislation so two different processes two different parts of county hall and two different pieces of of of, of work two different pieces of legislation so in planning enforcement it is really difficult to achieve in my experience, it appears to be, and I'm choosing my words carefully, because the planners who do their, to be fair, very best on the ground um, are, are overrun. So when planning applications come in, it's the same planner who deals with the planning application as deals with the planning enforcement case. Um, and in the old days, that wouldn't have been the case. There would have been planners specifically assigned to planning enforcement, but that is no longer the case. Um, those roles became empty and they weren't filled. So it's the primary planner is dealing with the enforcement case as well. And, you know, as is the normal order of things, if a planning application comes in, that's given priority. To be fair, development is almost always given priority. And Cork County Council would regard itself as being pro-development. So consequently, people who have difficulties become very frustrated that what they see as being a planning enforcement issue isn't being addressed with the rapidity and speed it needs to. They see what they regard as being the out of compliance developing development being built in front of their eyes and no one's come back to them about their, their planning complaint. That's really difficult for somebody who's affected by a non-compliance. And then when ultimately, so they ring and they ring and they ring, and then ultimately the planner gets the opportunity to come out and have a look. And at that stage, the development can be quite far progressed. And it is 99 times out of 100 the case that Cork County Council doesn't at that stage ask the developer to remove the the now well advanced development and so the poor neighbour or whoever's affected is left living with it and doing the best they can and that's a very difficult place for somebody to be and the other thing is it gives the impression that there may be a free-for-all you know that you can go ahead and do what you want to do without repercussion and I would dearly love to see more resources given to that side of planning um, and I think it would serve the council well you know it would give the council that authority um, and level of respect that truthfully they deserve and the planners deserve it they're doing their best so it's not fair on them when they go to the, prob- the bother of drafting well-considered um, conditions 
and attach them to a grant of planning, that those conditions can't be adhered to and followed up on. Mm. So I really, I really think that part of planning would benefit from having some more resources put to it. And I'll, 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 yeah. Sorry, 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 Marcy. Just to just no, to come fine. in there, and people people might be very very surprised to hear what you've just said because it's pretty much in in black and white. We'll say in in legislation or in circulars or guidelines. You know that the councils, local authorities, do have. We'll say the the enforcement to be able to tell a developer you know, at the extreme end to basically rip down what they've built because it's non-compliant uh, or to change this or that or the other. Um, and people will probably be very surprised to hear you say that on so many occasions, it actually doesn't ever get to that stage. So, and maybe it's a case of going for the retention or, uh, you know, or something maybe is is worked out with the the resident who's affected or the community that's affected. But if it comes to, we'll say, uh, we'll say a, a, a sustainability or an environmental issue, like money isn't really going to make any difference in that point of view. If let's say if it's harming the environment, for example, so it's probably it's not good enough. I suppose is the is the fundamental part, and maybe then just coming to the resources thing because I was going to ask you about, you know, local authorities and should should local government really be overhauled and get significant more funding from and decentralization from from dublin so maybe if you wanted to address address those two things yeah um we must come back to the derelict buildings though because you asked me about that too and that's really important too yeah look i don't think this is um personally i'd love to see decentralization that goes without saying and i think that local government is very much hindered by the hold that central government has on it to me and and of course i'm biased because i'm part of local government and i want to see decentralization of local government um for me, it's almost as if central government has an inferiority complex, that it doesn't trust local government sufficiently to manage its own business, to be honest. That is often how it seems to me. You're limited in your budgets. Everything you do is monitored. Every small change you make to a programme of works is monitored. The number of staff you can take is monitored. Now, to be fair, though, it, it may be the case, and I don't have the, the national experience to know this, Kieran. it may be the case that other lo local authorities put more of an emphasis on that enforcement piece. You know, so they may put resources into that that we put into something else in Cork County. I'm just not sure. But all I'm saying is, I think it would serve our planning department and Cork County Council well if we were even for a time to put resources and focus on the enforcement stage so that the primacy of Cork County Council as the local planning authority would be once again reinforced. And I think we need that for the council's sake, for planning's sake. I can't, just you said, you know, if there's an environmental or a sustainability cost to an out of compliance development. To be fair, I can't actually think of one off the top of my head. Um, if you can think of an example, you can give me do and I comment on it. In large part, where I see the non-compliances would be, would be things with regard to, um, say, construction programmes for development that might be happening in an area where residents are are very much affected by the day-to-day -day movement of the, the builder. That's, yeah, and, that's a good general example to use. Yeah, so that kind of thing. Or, for example, I'm thinking of one in particular now where um, the development was to dig into a hillside so it wouldn't be imposing on the visual landscape. And because that's expensive, the developer didn't do it. And they built a retaining wall to support the development. And consequently, every application that's that's followed on on that hillside has been out of compliance. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I'm thinking of those things. I can't think of something which would have 
an ongoing um, polluting impact, if you know what I mean, in the in the medium term. Mostly, mostly the impacts from non-compliance um, are are short term. With the exception, obviously, of a visual impact. So. That's right. And coming and point. coming back to derelict sites before I forget, because I know this yeah. is something you would definitely will want to talk about. So, yeah, derelict sites are, are a real bugbear. The first thing that's a real bugbear about, like everybody says, oh, the dereliction act isn't good enough. You know, the derelict sites act isn't good enough and doesn't give us the powers. I think it's not that bad, personally, if one were to use it. Um, so it gives quite a broad definition of what a derelict site is, and in Cork County Council. The interpretation of a derelict site um, within the executive is very different from that um, which the, the elected members see as being derelict. So I can think of buildings in my town which are boarded up, unpainted, have bodily growing out of the falling down gutters and are clearly missing roof tiles and have been this way for 12 years and more. And Cork County Council doesn't define those as derelict because they're painted. They look OK in their in their books. In my book, they're derelict. It's a site that's clearly unused, clearly vacant, is boarded up and needs to be moved on. And if you use the Derelict Sites Act in the way it's intended to be used, then you may just encourage that movement. But if you don't and you let them sit there, then you don't. So we have a small range of derelict sites on our books, um, our derelict sites list register in the Carrigonine Municipal District. And I think about a year ago, um, I did a freedom of information request to find out what levies were being imposed on these sites and whether those levies were paid up to date or not. And in none of them, they were paid up to date. Some of them had never paid at all. Um, apparently, the notice goes out every year to say your, your, your site is on the, the register and you owe us this much. And then that's never followed up. So that's not good enough at all. And then I followed that freedom of information request with a similar request for all of the other municipal districts in the county. And in some of the municipal districts, there are no sites on the derelict sites register. Now you tell me one county town you know in this county that doesn't have a derelict building on its main street. And the reality is there isn't one county town that doesn't have a derelict building on the main street, but yet in some of those municipal districts, we have no sites at all on the derelict sites register. So in my opinion, we're not using that legislation as it could be used. Now I do see problems with it. I think perhaps my biggest bugbear with it is that when a levy is imposed, if the levy's not paid, it's the purchaser of the building must pay the levy. So that's an off-putting thing for the purchase, for the, for the selling on of the building. And that's not right. So in my opinion, the owner of the building who's not paying the levy needs to be pursued in the appropriate way. But it's not okay that it would be um, a charge on the new owner who's going to try to breathe life into it. Inevitably, we'll have to put expense into a property that hasn't been loved for potentially decades. So I think that's, that's a bad piece of the act okay. but we could use it in ways that we're not um and i think it's got potential because of the housing crisis i think there's huge opportunity for cork county council to use the compulsory purchase and um, powers it has to to reinvigorate and bring new life into derelict buildings on main streets and again i know the city councils are quite energetic about this in, in places we're not cork county council is not and i'd love to see them do that I know they use the repair and renew scheme. Um, I think that's what it's called anyway. You know, that scheme that gives you now the, the 60,000 for doing up your property on the main street. The truth, and then you, you give it to the council for 15 years. The truth is that some of those buildings need more than that scheme gives you. Um, 
And I would just love to see the council take them over and and use them, sell them on if they have to, yeah. but get that bit of money from the department to do what needs to be done and then either let them or sell them. Doesn't matter. Just get them moved on. And that eliminates all that charges issue and and, you know, derelict sites register issues. And it just it's the best thing they could do for a streetscape, really. Yeah. And I think maybe in another issue that we run into just because of the way things have gone over the last 10 or 12 years is we'll say uh, or even in the last 18 months is the cost of materials has really gone up as well so in terms of what you know you, you mentioned one scheme there that that offers 60 60 000, like yeah what, what would that buy you now compared to what what it would have bought you three or four years ago the um the supply Absolutely. of the supply of builders and contractors i mean you know probably more than anyone on the ground how difficult it is for councils to actually get contractors even to do simple things like drawing drawing parking lines or disabled dis- disability spots in, right. in car parks and, and whatsoever and you can be waiting a long time for that to happen um, and that's probably uh, that's a, a big much bigger issue than local government and I, I always try to defend them um, when people when people say well you know they should have done that months ago or why is it taking so long um, but in terms of the streetscape, I think it offers a nice segue because I think when you put in that freedom of information request and you got your your reply and um, I would have been at that local council meeting when you when you brought it up. And I think the word you might have used which was that it was kind of vandalism in town centres or it was a scourge of communities, these derelict sites. And and maybe the impact it has on local community groups like Tidy Townses. And, you know, these are people who are all volunteers obviously and they they give their time on saturday mornings and tuesday evenings and not just in not just in the summer but in the cold and wet nights as well um you know and, and people come together and we'll say how much how how much resolve is in these people when they when they see like a site like a, a derelict site and the stuff coming out of it and there's nothing they can do about it and yet they're doing their very best every day or every week to go around and try and make their town centres a better place. Yeah, um, yeah, there was one gentleman in our Tidy Towns group years ago who used, because Passage West is a former industrial town um, and consequently suffered literally a generation and more of, of impact from the loss of that industry with the ensuing dereliction. We suffered badly from dereliction and we still have some ongoing sites of significant dereliction that continue to impact on the streetscape. But one gentleman in our Tidy Towns group years ago, he used to call it creeping dereliction. So what happens is when you've got one property that's really in quite a bad way, the one beside it just has to look better than that property to be okay and so on. And so that 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 sort of you know, run downness. Ah, yes, the painting's not too bad this year. I let it go. Do you know that kind of um, impact tends to run down the the whole the length of the whole street, and that becomes an extremely difficult thing to overcome. So even if you've got, you know, in our case, we've got some, some some large fundamental properties that are derelict. But even if you've got only one terraced property, that one terraced property can have that that ripple effect throughout the terrace on both sides of the street. Um, and, and that one terraced property may be costing the owner nothing to leave in that condition. That's the reality. That's likely, a, you know, owned for generations or, or certainly a long number of years. There's no mortgage on it. There's no charge in it. It may or may not be on the derelict sites list. In the case of the county, it probably isn't on the derelict sites list. There's no rates due. It's costing nothing to the owner. And, and 
And so it's a tidy towns group or its equivalent can do nothing about that. So um, does it impact on tidy towns groups and community volunteers? Yes, is the short answer. It does. So I was part of setting up our tidy towns group here locally in 2009. And for the first few years, we entered the tidy towns competition for the bigger. You know, we did all the usual tidy town stuff, planting, sweeping and litter picking and blah, blah, blah. But um, there's a section in the competition entry form that deals with streetscape. And because our dereliction impacted in such a fundamental way on the town centre, um, we just couldn't improve our marks. And it didn't matter how hard we tried. We were much, much lower in overall marks than other communities whom we felt were, were not half as attractive as our waterside um, our waterside community with its architectural heritage and, and, and its designated streetscape. We felt we had, you know, so much to offer, but we weren't being recognised for that or for our efforts because of the dereliction. And so we stopped entering the competition. So we still continue with what we do, but we don't enter the competition because it's too negative. The impact is too negative um, psychologically relative to the amount of hours we contribute to the voluntary work. So, yeah, it does. It has a real impact. Yeah, I think you make a good point there in terms of the, the psychological damage that can happen, um, you know, in a community. And, and you mentioned uh, maybe if, if the previous example you were giving about if, if one house is kind of left to go, then there's a knock on impact that it can have in certain in, in certain cases. And the next door neighbor might say, well, if, if they're not bothering, then I won't bother. Um, and I think the this this it to give them their credit uh you know the the fact that local authorities can can draw down money for the street uh, certain programs like the streetscape and the painting and stuff like that and i see that there was a um another uh, a press release came out today and passage west is 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 on that list for funding to get um, for streetscape today which is fantastic um i maybe just to just to finish on one last thing marcy is is because of the we'll say the time and the devotion that you've given and you've seen these people on the ground all the time do we take local groups for granted in terms of all of the work that they do um and are they getting enough support do you feel from local authorities and or you know is it to the best that they can do it, is it do we do we need to see more I suppose, funding coming from the top again. And like, what would happen to our town centres if we did lose these incredible um, people who are all across the country who, who volunteer week in, week out? Okay, so you've asked three questions there. The first is, are they adequately recognised? And the answer is, I think, yes. Um, do they get enough money? The answer is, I think, yes. <laughs> um, and what would happen if they weren't there? I think the fabric of our towns would crumble. OK, so um, we have we have look, I can see it in our, in our own town, just made extraordinary strides on the back of voluntary effort. Um, there's a good partnership between voluntary effort and the county council, and that has improved really significantly in the last five, six, seven years. Um, at that stage, significant funding um, came to tidy towns groups. Cork County Council does it well actually. They have a community contract, and if the tidy towns group sets out, and specifically for tidy towns groups, and if it's if the tidy towns group sets out what it wants to achieve over the course of the coming twelve months, has a discussion with both the area office and the municipal district office at the beginning of the year to run through these projects and see what's agreeable and feasible and not, um, and then applies for the money. 
they will get 100% funding for what they propose to achieve. Now, sometimes in a smaller town, a tighter towns group might have dreams and ambitions above what the council can provide financially. Um, in, in a bigger town like Carrigaline, the funding can be, Jesus, really quite substantial altogether. Um, and that would only be part of the annual funding that Tidy Towns Group would get because they can go for other grants to do other enhancement projects. So the answer is, I think they're well funded. They need to be run well because there's a tremendous amount of accounting needed to do um, to, to justify what you're proposing to do and show what you have done and document it all accordingly. Um, and the council is very good to work with. But there is an amount of what I would regard as statutory local authority work, like street sweeping, litter picking, keeping footpaths clear, that is all done, down to painting curbs, that is all done by voluntary contribution. I don't think that's good enough. Um, and I, I think that the Tidy Town's efforts should be supplementary to the local authorities' efforts, not instead of the local authorities' efforts. That's not okay. So I think there's a piece there that will probably continue to need to be addressed. Um, the streetscape schemes and all that coming, the, the, the interaction between that voluntary effort and, and the dereliction piece and the, the local authority, the streetscape schemes are great. And it was tremendous to have the name of Passage West put forward for the most recent streetscape proposals that are coming from government. That's fantastic. And we've done a lot of work in that regard in this town before, because with the dereliction issue, painting schemes and painting grants were really important to try to brighten up the street. And we've put, you know, individually and with the business association, I've put in a lot of effort in trying to speak to business owners one by one and saying, you know, will you paint? What do you think of this? Giving them examples of, of, of colour schemes and working with them on what their building might look like with a particular colour. And that there's been a lot of effort gone into that over the last couple of years, and it's really beginning to pay dividends. And so whilst I'm thrilled that the, the most recent announcement for, for streetscape improvements would go to passage, there comes a stage when painting a building or putting up flowers or washing litter bins is no longer good enough. And at some stage, the County Council has to come in with brave structural improvements. Um, I live in a town with a regional road running through it. My town is one of many in such situations throughout the county and country, God knows. At some stage, we have to say, OK, how do we give this town back to people? How do we no longer have the car or the vehicle as dominant in the town? What can we now do to create an environment in the street that's pleasant for people? Um, because people shop, cars don't, you know. So at some stage, the council needs to stop what I would describe as putting sticking plaster on, on the sort of dereliction and, and rundownness of the town centres and make those more fundamental structural interventions in conjunction with the community. But um, look, any money that comes our way, we're thrilled with and we will use and we will, we will deliver on um, and it'll make a difference and it has. But I want to see more structural intervention now. I want to see, you know, we've got huge capital assets um, we've got a water site that needs developing and capitalizing on we've got architectural conservation areas that are second to none and need plazas in front of them where people can stop and admire them and mingle in front of them and you know we need we need all that to be addressed too it's not enough to continue painting and putting up flowers 
Amazing, Mercy. It, it's a fantastic note to to end on. We're always trying to um, we're always trying to push that kind of people before cars um, uh, <laughs> agenda as well. And it doesn't always get it doesn't always get a lot of uh, nice comments and feedback on Facebook and community notice boards. But um, I think there's room we, for all of them, Kieran. Yeah, if you could just no, slow the traffic, like you know, it sounds like ours, but there's never going to be a bypass just start really slowing the traffic so that you've shared surfaces. And I know they're not ideal, but nothing's ideal in a town where there's a regional road, narrow streets and no possibility of a bypass. So you just do the best you can. Um, and there will be sacrifices, you know, but largely on street parking will be the sacrifice. Let's be truthful. So that's where the local authority steps in. Let them CPO something to provide a car park elsewhere so that those who need to drive have the opportunity to do so. And it's not taking away from the viability of the town centre, but it's allowing the streets to breathe, you know, because that's what they need to do. They need to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think maybe we're just we're so uh, I think as a as a nation and a nationality, we, we don't really like change that much. And we certainly don't like it in any sort of radical shape or form. Um, But, you know, sometimes maybe we just someone just needs to take the plunge and uh, for a bit of short-term pain for long-term, long-term success. So Marcia, thanks. That's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And it's, it's great to have, we'll say the political um, insight and aspect of things as well, which maybe a lot of people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hear um, most of the time, particularly from a, from a local council point of view. So um, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and we had so much more to discuss. We didn't do the development plan or the retail outlet centre or any next of those time. wonderful things. <laughs> next time, next time. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for asking me, Kieran. <laughs> Thank you, Marcia. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Marcia Dalton. I thought that was a, a wonderful chat and I'm sure uh, many people listening in will have thought it quite insightful and it offers a really interesting perspective from someone maybe who works with the council on a on a day-to-day basis and knows the ins and outs probably better than most people. Um, I'm joined now uh, by Colin Cotenhogan, the co-host, and he's back in Ardmore today. Fun fact about Ardmore, population of 434, according to the last census, I make that 435 with him there now colin how are you i'm good karen how are what's you? my what's my maths like does that make sense yeah that's so that sounds about right yeah okay so, yeah. okay i make an engineer yet i make an engineer yet. absolutely 435 yeah yeah um listen i was just wondering maybe what you thought about that conversation with marcia was there anything in particular that interested you or caught your caught your ear I think what you mentioned there a minute ago in your introduction there is certainly a working um, professional within the local council and I think she gave a very balanced uh, view of uh, the work of local authority and she was in no kind of means trying to um, say that the, you know that the local authorities were doing a bad job or a good job they, she was like I said she just was very very balanced in that re- in that regard um, one thing in particular I suppose that I would um, have found very interesting was um, the uh, legal aspect of the conversation with regards to the derelict sites act and I think that she was mentioning that it's actually fine in its current format it's just that from a legal standpoint it's fine in its current format it just actually needs to be used and I think that's 
across the board, I think, in terms of policy in Ireland. I think that we have some fantastic policy documents and we have some fantastic legislation within the Planning Development Act and things like that. It just actually just needs to actually be enacted. I think, that, you know, on the ground, you know, what, do you, what did you think of that part of it? Yeah, I mean, one one side of things that she speaks about is perhaps that maybe other councils and other local authorities across the country come at it from a different perspective. And maybe there's a difference in, we'll say, interpretation of the act itself. Um, if you look at a, a council like Limerick, I suppose they are, we'll say, the trailblazers at the moment in the media in terms of the amount of CPOing that they are doing around uh, around Limerick, Limerick City and County. And perhaps, you know, resources are focused in other authorities elsewhere, whether it be on, you know, a sustainability point of view or an environmental one. So I thought that was, um, I thought that was an interesting point that she made. Uh, I suppose from the, fr- from the political side of things, um, you know, for, for those that don't know, I suppose I, I did my undergrad in, in politics and I would be at a lot of these council meetings that Marcia would would attend uh you know and, and she brings up the the importance of the kind of role of town councils um that she would have been part of with passage west and how they were um abolished back in in 2014 and maybe the difference that that has made at a local level just in terms of being um you know the the amount of engagement and involvement and perhaps how difficult more or we'll say more difficult it is um, for for uh, kind of aspiring uh, community leaders to get involved in local politics and make it make a difference. Um, I was very surprised at that, to be honest with you. I was very surprised at the fact I, I was actually, I didn't realize, I suppose, uh, from even though obviously we're, um, you know, studying planning and things like that, you know, I think that I was very surprised at the kind of the abolishment of the town councils and things like that around Ireland because, I think any any effort should be made to involve local, you know, to make, you know, involve the local community, you know, and whatever way that, you know, and it's interesting from in within the US, for example, obviously having just moved, having just moved back from there and having traveled there even um, recently, that um, they're very very much into their town their local government there you know the even where um i was uh i was in a very small little area um in upstate new york uh last week and uh they have a town council uh, they have your count it breaks down in terms of your county then your town councils then your village councils and they very you know they're really believe in kind of the involvement of the local community in all aspects of um, decisions around planning and things like that. So I think that was, I I think we should be really focusing in whatever way we can in Ireland to uh, involve people, you know, and I think people like Marcia have made such a huge impact in, in, in regards to their local communities. And I think that should only be encouraged. Yeah. And I suppose as planners were, regularly encouraged and told to look at the importance of participation and uh, public consultation and engaging with communities as much as possible and not just reaching out to the same old war horses um but uh, also trying to reach across the divide to people maybe who haven't spoken before 
um, you know, and try and get a diverse range of opinions and so on. And uh, you, you would have thought that town council has offered that opportunity. Um, and there are uh, there are our calls, and I think it was uh, Brendan Howlin, um, leader of the Labour Party, who actually, kind of in fairness, having been a part of a government that uh, that abolished them, um, under Phil Hogan, had actually held his hands up and said, "Look, uh, lads, we actually got this one wrong," and uh, there were he was trying to get the ball rolling to reinstate town councils. So, um, people will have uh, divided opinions on that. I, I suppose. Uh, a, uh, something else that cropped up and you said it there before about perhaps how balanced uh, Marcia was and she was very fair she didn't want to put the boot in on anyone um, even when we were talking about was we'll say the the demand or the reliance that's placed on local community groups like Tidy Townses who um, planners and uh, municipal district officers in local authorities would regularly be in contact with and trying to help along the way. Uh, but she felt that they were recognized adequately. Um, but at the same time, she felt that if there, if those people weren't there day in, day out, then I think the word she used was that, that our town centers would crumble. Um, I, think so she, we, I think she specifically mentioned, yeah, the fabric of our town centers, you know, which, which is, you know, a very, strong kind of emotive word really I you know really plays on that kind of sense of place um and things like that and I think she um you know really uh you, you know it's so easy I suppose to go down that road of um you know the question that you asked oh do you think that um council or that local groups are adequately recognized and adequately funded you see it's so easy to go down that road and say, oh, well, we could do better and this and, you know, but she came out and made a very strong statement and said, no, they're actually pretty well recognized, pretty well funded. Um, and they're, but, but they are, like you said, vitally important to the um, structure of towns around and villages around Ireland. Absolutely. Um, and look, we could continue our conversation, I'm sure, long into the night, but we'll leave it there so and i know we have another podcast coming out next week this time with alison harvey from the heritage council so really looking forward to that one and looking forward to hearing that conversation that you had with her so look we'll leave it there so colin i'll talk to you later and uh, hope everyone enjoys the podcast